Welcome to To Be Continued, a Stonecroft Symposium podcast. In today's episode, Anna Shaw Hawk talks beating practices, indigiqueer identities, and generating creative community spaces with Howard Adler and Cole Petlinski. Hi, folks. Welcome to today's podcast featuring activist artists Howard Adler and Cole Petlinski. The show is happening as an ongoing commitment to lift past the liminality of the exhibit to be continued Troubling the Queer Archive, which is being shown at the Carleton University Art Gallery. The gallery and the university occupies the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Algonquin people. The relationships we have with universities and galleries are often mediated through the roles they've played within colonial projects of nation building. Thus, our aim with this show is to combat the everlasting legacy of the white cis heteronormative settler colonial systems at play that prioritize a narrative that leaves as an afterthought two-spirit, queer, trans, indigenous, black, people of color voices and realities. Today, our show is about the platform that art provides when married with activist interventions. My name is Anna Shahak, and I, along with Cara Tierney, are the co-curators for To Be Continued. This juxtaposition of art meeting activism plays a particularly important role in my own position as a queer refugee of color in a settler colonial context. Art is really the thing that mobilized and informed me of the sort of the concurrent alternate histories and stories that inform what is now currently Canada. Even the idea of Canada as an absolute and troubling that notion was something that I only became aware of through my relationship with art. You know, certain art and artists politicized me both through their critiques and interrogations of settler colonial narratives. Simultaneously, you know, other artists sort of showed me the joy and the love that's threaded through their practice that celebrated their own communities, but also sort of tied it to broader conversations about things that are happening in the world and different geographies. So thinking about connecting causes and strategies across geographies was something that was an important takeaway. The importance around surrounding the conversation around marrying art with activism is very much that these two things coming at the intersections together is the gift it sort of connects what's happening on the ground locally and links it to macro and micro levels. Today, we're so fortunate to have two individuals who leverage art in multiple modalities to rally community to come together and offset the dominant archives and dominant narratives. Cole, Howard, I would love for each of you to sort of introduce yourselves to who you are, how you came to be in Ottawa, and we'll go from there. Cole, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Annie Bozo, Mamaji Zigobawateg, and so hi, my name is Cole. Uh, I introduced myself in Anishinaabe Moen, which I am trying to pick up uh, as a part of my decolonization journey and reclamation journey of my Indigenous culture. I am from uh, Megizi Odana Eagle Village First Nation, but I grew up in North Bay and came to Ottawa about 10 years ago to study at Ottawa University. And I use they, them pronouns. And I think that's it. Awesome. Howard? Hi. Bonjour, Annie. Howard Ndishnikaz. Wabjashi Ndodem. Nezatakang Donjiba. Gitchinendam Nongom Mampi Keng Podcast. My name is Howard Adler. I'm Anishinaabe and Jewish. My family is from a community called Lac Demilac First Nation or uh, Nezatakong in Ojibwe. Like Cole, been trying to pick up the Anishinaabemowin language as an adult, trying to reclaim 
the language that was basically stolen from our family through various historical processes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I grew up in Southern Ontario. I didn't grow up on the reserve, came to Ottawa for university. So I guess I'm a mixed blood, urban, queer, indigenous person. I also identify as Two-Spirit, Nijmanitouak. Thanks, Howard. And what pronouns would you prefer me to be using? Uh, I'm good with he, him, or they, them. Okay, amazing. I think it's really awesome that you both sort of started out with thinking about the language reclamation and what it means for your identity. I will maybe call on each of you to sort of expand a little bit more on that. So in terms of thinking about the language around Two-Spirit and what does that mean for each of you how did you come across thinking through that particular identity lens? And how does that fall in with also um, being queer and indigenous? Like, how does that shape who you are in this city and the various communities that are in the city? That is a big question. <laughs> that is a big question. Do you want to rock, paper, scissors, Cole? Uh, no, you can go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, in terms of like the language of Two-Spirit, I guess I first came across it in my early 20s. I remember finding this book called Two-Spirit People in a bookstore. And it had like a feather on it. I don't know if you've seen that book, but it's one of the first books I saw that was like about, it was very academic, but it was one of the first times I like saw anything about Two-Spirit. And yeah, it, it, I think it just kind of felt like when I first learned about this term, and what it meant, uh, it kind of felt like, okay, here's, here's something that kind of fits and makes me feel comfortable with my identity. Um, I don't feel like I, I don't think anybody ever just like instantly fits in with the LGBTQ plus community, you kind of have to find your place. I feel like that was a term that sat well with me right away, mostly because the history of it being a term that was created by Indigenous people for Indigenous people at a conference gathering of Two-Spirit people back in the 90s. So the creation of this term for us made me feel I know, more comfortable with it. I, I know there are critiques of the term itself. I like the term, but I do think that it's always best if you have the knowledge or the accessibility to find the words in your own language, whether that's Anishinaabe or Haudenosaunee or whatever culture you're from. If there are words that exist in your language for, I don't know how to say it, two-spirit people, I guess. If there are words in your language to, you know, it's always best to try and re reclaim those and reuse those. So yeah, I guess that's where I'm at with the term two-spirit. Yeah, so similarly, when I came to Ottawa, like I moved away from my small town and came to Ottawa for school, mostly very closeted, very unsure of where I was in my queer journey. And I started volunteering for a local organization, doing workshops and stuff. And through that, I met another Two-Spirit individual who's still a good friend of mine today, who invited me to co-host a workshop with them about two-spirit identities. And I was like, wait, this is a thing. Like I had no idea, didn't know about it. And they were like, you're indigenous. Maybe you should just co-host it with me. And I was like, okay. And then ever since then, I, they were like, I mostly invited you to do this because you're two-spirit. I just thought I'd let you know. And I was like, what? <laughs> And then I, like through that, talking to elders and two-spirit elders, um, I realized that that term does fit me. It uh, kind of like what Howard was saying, like I found it and it felt like home. It encompasses for me both like my gender identity. So like in colonial terms, 
going back to language, I would identify as like a non-binary trans person with my sexuality being bisexual or queer or whatever you want to call it. But I think Western society loves a good binary and loves a good box. And I felt like I am too magical to fit in a box. Like, I don't want to be boxed in, especially with expectations that are so heavily tied to colonialism. So Two-Spirit felt like that word of coming home and that I can live with outside those boxes, but still be able to communicate who I am to people outside. So, you know, when I say Two-Spirit, some people know what that means. Some people don't know what that means. but Everyone kind of has, like, they know that it means, like, queer or that it's a part of, like, the broader LGBTQ community and Indigenous. It's really important for me as a mixed kid as well. You can't have my queerness without my Indigenousness. You can't have one without the other. And I feel like a lot of the time in our communities, we're asked to hold back different parts of ourselves to fit into like these boxes. And for me, like you're going to have all of me or none of me. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. I feel like there's a meme in the making with like, I'm too magical to fit into a box. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Great. Glad to help. <laughs> I agree. I'm gonna. I'm taking notes here. I'm gonna. <laughs> Seriously, I I really think this would be an amazing collaborative moment. Uh, speaking of collaborations, there was a project that you were both part of. You were part of a film, One Contrary Five Aguaquenini. How did that project sort of come across? Um, how did you cross paths? That's a good question. I don't exactly remember the specifics of how me and Cole cross paths do you I also don't I was like I think we just like met on this film like we met maybe a little bit before the film just in like queer circles yeah Ottawa is a small community and then you throw like queer community into it and it's even smaller <laughs> we yeah but I honestly I don't remember either like the specifics and I was like trying to rack my brain and I was like no it's just gone <laughs> I can provide a bit more context on the film though yeah that'd be fantastic howard so the film we were shooting was called one contrary five ogokwe nini basically i had made a film before this called one girl five bears (laughs) it was uh, basically one drag queen and five gay bearish men and it was a spoof of a tv show called one girl five gays which used to be on mtv or something much music or something anyway so i did the spoof film And it it was just them talking about men's issues, masculinity and body issues. And it was really cool. And then my friend Carmel, Carmel Whittle, uh, she really loved it. And she was like, let's do one with two-spirit people. I was like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And that's basically how that film idea came about. And we ended up shooting it twice, actually, because the first shoot, my bag got stolen and all the footage got stolen with it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I remember that. (laughs) That was the worst. It was devastating. I was so, I was so upset. Anyway, (laughs) everybody was so invested in it. We planned a second shoot and we shot it and the film got made. And I'm, yeah, really happy that it did get made. That's wicked. And since then, it's been screened a couple of times. And I'm trying to sort of think about, like, in terms of the film and the organizations that did the viewings, what was that like? Did you have an opportunity to sort of speak beyond the text of the film itself, like coming in as a panel to share stories with each other? Yeah, 
It screened a couple times. It screened in like a community center here in Ottawa. And I think me, Carmel, and one other person from the film was there. And we did like a Q&A. And it was interesting because the audience was all newcomers and immigrants. So the audience was really, I don't know, they were really interested in the fact that there was a history of colonialism here because they're coming from countries where they're escaping certain situations, right? And to learn that Indigenous people up here are also like survivors of certain things, I think they were just kind of really interested in that idea and it was kind of new to them. So we had a lot of engaging discussion at that Q&A. And then the second time I remember it screening was in Kingston at the Real Out Queer Film Festival. Again, it was I think there was three of us at the Q&A and it was a, definitely a completely different audience. Uh, <laughs> a lot of, uh, I guess, more of a mainstream audience and, and some Indigenous people. Yeah, it was, it was really good feedback. I think people were just not used to hearing queer Indigenous people talk candidly about their experiences. And I think there's a need for that. For sure. I think you bring up such a great point, Howard, in terms of outsider perspective of what we know now as Canada, how it gets framed. And so when you have people who are like coming from other colonial histories and they enter into this geography, there isn't like a pre-known knowledge uh, in the same way. Your creative practices are kind of engaging with those interventions, those historic interventions. And I'm wondering, like, before we actually go to the specificities of it, if we can have a conversation about what does that mean for you as like activist and artist because you're both on the front lines what does that creative process do for you like you know if we think about the chicken or the egg sort of scenario is there even a separation Cole do you want to go first yeah I guess like my activism definitely came first I was volunteering for a local org doing workshops going to schools and youth mostly youth-based work and doing workshops and education work. And when my grandmother, my Nana, who is actually not Indigenous, but her husband was Métis and she was very supportive of him and his culture. And she was like very involved in her friendship center and learned how to beat and was a part of a women's drumming group and like just like really wanted her children and grandchildren to grow up with the indigenous culture which is like really beautiful and so when she passed I actually inherited all of her beading supplies and I kind of used that medium as a way to like grieve her loss and grieve the loss of my grandfather who had passed before her which I hadn't like properly processed so For me, this form of artwork came to me as like a form of healing. And I very much believe that our beating is medicine and that you're putting your heart and soul and your energy into this medium that's so time consuming. I can like feel the ancestors. I can feel their energy or I can feel people before me have done this art form. So like to answer your question, I think now as I bead um, as like this medicine, not only to heal myself, but to heal our communities and to heal these parts of ourselves that are like hurting uh, from this colonial violence. So, you know, I do beading workshops or beading circles just with like other queer folks or indigenous folks or just open to anyone. As long as like you're using it for healing and not like appropriating or like trying to profit off of it, like I think that it's beautiful and open to everyone. Um, and that's just my opinion. But yeah, now that I've found this medium, I feel like it goes back to that like you can't have my queerness without my indigenousness. You can't have my art without the fact that it's indigenous 
or and queer and activism work and revolution and heart work so yeah 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 I think that's a beautiful way to connect with like your legacies that you carry with you and what the beading practice actually then generates beyond the scope of even your own relationship with the beads like what you're seeing in terms of the beading circles uh, and the other sort of workshop setups Howard what about you how did you come into beading that's a good question I think I first learned to bead when I was working briefly at the Métis Center at the National Aboriginal Health Organization years ago. I'd never done beading before, but there was a Métis artist named Brian Sear. He did a workshop with some of the staff at some point for some reason. I don't remember the specifics, but he taught me the Métis way of beading with like two needles. And I did a little beaded flower and it was my first thing and I loved it. And it was really just a really um, therapeutic or like, I don't know, I found found it very calming. That was kind of my first attempt at it. And over the years, I've done a lot of beading projects. My mom used to bead and I found all my mom's old beading supplies and pillaged them. I'm like, mom, can I have these? And and she even had like old beading patterns that she had drawn up. And so I beaded a, a dress shirt with like some designs that she had made. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> During the quarantine thing, I, I got really heavy into the beadwork. I feel like it was a really healing use of time during the global pandemic when you're, everybody's on lockdown. I was beating like a crazy person every day for like six, seven, eight hours a day, beating, beating, beating. <laughs> I agree with you on that. <laughs> Can't stop. <laughs> I finished a full vest, a beaded vest, and I started on a second one as well. I'm beating another vest from my older brother, Sean. I'm planning to keep beating. I want to make one for my twin brother. And also I want to make uh, one for my friend Chris. So I, yeah, beading is just kind of addictive. I kind of love it. And yeah, I also wanted to just quickly address something Cole said about like, you can't have my indigeneity without my queerness or vice versa. Backtracking a bit. I think that I kind of relate to that when I was, you know, a young, younger person. I kind of felt like I couldn't be, uh, I don't know how to phrase it. I felt like I couldn't be queer in native spaces and I felt like I couldn't be native in queer spaces it was this weird disconnect where I I don't know I just didn't feel comfortable being the entirety of myself in different spaces and I think it was learning about what two-spirit is that helped me be more comfortable with who I am yeah I mean I think you raise a really good point Howard in terms of we're a sum of a whole right it's not parts of ourselves that can only function in silos what did you like you know, the landscape in Ottawa has shifted so much. But when you were referring to like coming into the city as a youth, what was that like? What was, um, you know, what was, for instance, like one of the first sort of events that you attended, a first art event or a first activist event that you went to that sort of really left an impact on you? Do you want to go first, Cole? <laughs> um, Sure. I don't remember specifics, but like when I came, I came for school when I was 18 and I was oh my god I can't which is 10 years ago um and I was such a baby and didn't know like anything about myself I feel like everyone feels that way when you're teen and you're figuring out who you are and you're exploring but like when you throw queerness into the mix or like racialized identity into the mix you're like adding more things to figure out and like conceptualize code switching is like a big thing. Where is it safe to be authentic and where are these spaces that feel safe for you to let those walls down? 
growing up in a smallish town that was like, I didn't grow up on reserve. The reserve was like 30 minutes away. It was very separate. So I grew up without um, knowing traditions or like really knowing my community. And so when I came to Ottawa, I made the conscious effort, especially when I heard the term two-spirit, because like I said, that was when I started to feel whole is when I heard that term. That felt like a good feeling. So to chase that feeling, I wanted to not only explore these queer scenes that I was exploring at the time, but also explore like these Indigenous communities as well and find space for both parts of myself. There wasn't a specific events that I've been to that like really made me feel that way. So I think like the way that I worked that out is that I started creating them like and making and taking up my own space and making my own space. And the way I did that is um, for the organization that I used to work for, I we did a two spirit campaign. Um, and so we had a big like launch party. This was like 2016. So we had like a big celebration. We had throat singers and dancers and a the documentary Two Soft Things, Two Hard Things screened in Dundonald Park. I'm very much like if there's no space for me or I can't find that space or it's hard to access, I try to make it myself, which isn't always accessible for everyone. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to create those spaces. Even the film that Howard and I worked on, even that was like one of the first times that I'd been in a room with five other very like gender diverse folks who were Indigenous. And we all had very different experiences, but we all had very similar experiences too. And that was like really affirming and lovely. And like that film was super fun. I mean, it sucked that we had to do it twice, but like it was also kind of like a blessing because then we got to hang out more and have these conversations. And I feel like yeah, these conversations need to happen and these spaces need to be created. I think it was a couple of years ago, there was the Two-Spirit Ball. I think it was last year. And that was that was another like really amazing event. And you're seeing more, you know, Two-Spirit in this queer Indigenous culture like erupt. Like, and in Anishinaabe culture specifically, there's a prophecy of the seventh generation and the seven fires. And it talks about how our ancestors wait for this seventh generation to come to like essentially like change the world. And a lot of people say that we're in that seventh fire now. Um, but you see that a lot, even with like the protests or and movements with Wet'suwet'en and what's happening in Navajo Nation and all these other things. The people in the front lines are young, queer, two-spirit youth who are doing this work, who are challenging these notions of gender, challenging these notions of what it means to have relation to the land, and they're creating these spaces. So it goes beyond just the Ottawa scene uh, and goes like far, far beyond that to like borders. And we are reclaiming not only like one piece of this, but a whole way of being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we shift over to Howard Cole, just to continue with some of the things that you're bringing up, when you're talking about creating these spaces for yourself, for, for community members, what are some of the challenges that, you, that you've encountered coming into the Ottawa space at that point, you know, as a baby queer? And then has that sort of landscape changed for you now? And like, 
how you can put events together, how you can sort of rally folks to come together from like the earlier histories of where you tried to set the pathway for where it is now? Yeah, I think one of the main barriers is tokenization. (laughs) And this idea, especially like being a young queer person, a lot of folks were And just because of the history of colonization, they were ready to exploit my labor and my emotional labor and my like everything to like create these spaces under the guise of like creating these spaces for a good reason, but actually just there for like, okay, let's tick this box. Like we have a land acknowledgement and now we're not racist, like, you know, or we're not colonial or like, oh, it's okay. We have a two-spirit person on our staff, so it's fine. Like, Um, So I think that was like my main barrier and like creating these spaces and making them safe. And when I say safe, I don't mean for a white cis queer person. I mean for the street involved, drug using. I want it safe for everyone. I want someone who, you know, we have a lot of high rates of drug use and homelessness in our indigenous communities. Why aren't are street involved folks able to access these events? I think that was a big part of me, like reasons why we have it, uh, had our event in a park. I wanted people to have access and there's a lot of colonial tape and gatekeeping around who has access to ceremony, who has access to these spaces. And uh, for me, that was like a big I want these spaces to be accessible for everyone as or as accessible as they can possibly be. And when I talk about ceremony, I'm not talking just about the ceremony that you go to in a sweat lodge or whatever, but I mean like even just the ceremony of like connecting and the ceremony of like sharing space, sharing food, uh, sharing medicines. And I feel we often don't get those times together or there's a lot of gatekeeping around who's allowed to access those spaces. So that's like the main barriers. I think for me now, I've definitely learned what to pick and choose my battles. Um, and I mean that in the way of like, I put my boundaries first now. I know when someone's using me for good or evil. Like I know when someone is genuine and has the same intentions as me or someone that just wants me to do a thing so they can tick off a box on their organization. That does not to say that I might not do the latter because the space still needs to be created, but it just means that I'm aware of those things and I'm aware of like how to navigate those systems better now. Right. Right. I want to come back to some of the things that you're bringing up, Cole. I just want to have an opportunity for Howard to share, and then maybe we can come back to thinking about, like, as a youth, the spaces that you've had to generate for yourself. And then what does that mean um, when you're shifting from being a youth to becoming a youth mentor? But uh, let's revisit with Howard first, and then we'll come back to that. So, like, as Cole was sharing about what it meant for them to generate a space, because the space wasn't necessarily easily available for them when they came into the Ottawa scene as a youth, what did that look like for you coming into the Ottawa landscape? What kind of spaces existed for you? How did you get into the sort of both creative and uh, political communities that you're now deeply entrenched in? Yeah, so I guess when I first came to Ottawa, I was in my mid-20s, so I was a bit older. And like many queer people still figuring out 
who the fuck I was. <laughs> but I came to university, so I was in the Canadian Studies program at Carleton, and I, you know, I had a a group of other Indigenous um, students that I was in class with and became friends with. So I did find a community here. Um, hanging out in the old native students lounge in the tunnel system there. There was like three computers and like a dirty old couch. Um, the new one is much more fancy. And um, just like also considering myself an artist, probably found Saw Video or Saw Gallery at some point and just started going to their events and programming and found spaces like that that are, um, you know, supportive of artists. And uh, what was the second part of your question? Like, so you're talking about places like Saw Video. Were there spaces that you could readily access? What did the institutional access look like for you? Well, I mean, I think that there are basically no spaces for two-spirit people in my experience. Like, not really. I feel like things are getting a bit better, but there's still, there's queer organizations and there's Indigenous organizations and Sometimes the queer organizations will do native programming and, and vice versa. Sometimes the native organizations will try and do some two-spirit things. But it's kind of just like this afterthought or something. I think that's still a problem. I think that there aren't specifically always safe spaces for us as two-spirit people. So I think that's still an ongoing struggle. I kind of agree with a lot of what Cole said about creating your own space. And I always came at things sort of as an artist and a filmmaker um, I remember my friend did a teepee confessions event at Carleton and it, it wasn't queer specific, but it was like very, you know, open. And I ended up making a film with Charlotte at the teepee confessions and it was called snag lines. Oh, I remember I was there at that event. It was so good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was so fun. I just uh, set up like a microphone and a camera and it was open. Anybody could just tell the camera their best pickup line or their best snag line and uh, probably had like 100 different people tell us their snag lines or maybe not that many. Anyway, I cut all the pickup lines into one short little four minute video and I, I feel like I've come into I don't know queer spaces or native queer spaces by creating them. Like after I finished the Carlton, I kind of started the Esenapka Film Festival with my friend Chris Wong and we've been doing that festival for nine years now and I think I've always tried to have queer film programming at the festival and then um, last year we ended up planning the Two-Spirit Ball and partially from just an admiration and love of all the Two-Spirit talent out there there's so many amazing indigenous indigenous queer artists and we just wanted to showcase just queer content just indigenous queer content and it turned out to be probably one of our most successful events ever, in my opinion, anyway. It was a really good party. <laughs> yeah, so I think creating your own spaces and finding spaces is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cole, you've done Two-Spirit Blanket exercise before. Howard, you're talking about Asinapka Film Festival. In terms of generating support for the events to actually happen, so in terms of like the physical space itself to put these events together, what does that look like for each of you? What kind of support structures did you reach out to to get the funding, to get the sort of conversation generated so that people would know about it, so that like folks could feel safe to come and attend? Cole, do you want to go first? Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Two-Spirit Blanket exercise is? Oh, sorry. Um, no, not blanket exercises ex uh, ex 
so blanket exercises, I don't do blanket exercises, but I do like just general two spirit workshops. Okay. All right. Do you want to like share a little bit of the details of those workshops, what they covered or like, how do they come about? What does that relationship look like? Yeah, mostly when I was working for the nonprofit in Ottawa, um, I used a lot of their resources and connections in terms of like being able to use space and their networks. And when I left my contract there or like when my contract ended, I kind of just uh, kept doing workshops. So often like I have a website and do beating workshops and stuff and just through like talking to folks and and having made these spaces in the past, I tend to meet people who are always like interested to learn more. And then I'll just be like, if you would like to learn more, I do workshops or I can speak more on those topics. The workshops that I normally do is I talk about the history of like Two-Spirit, the term, like where did it come from? I've been fortunate enough to meet several Two-Spirit elders and learn some of those teachings and histories about two-spiritness in itself. So I try to pass those on and keep sharing those stories. I feel like that's part of my role here is to make sure that these things aren't lost. And yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Howard, you were speaking about the Asanapka Film Festival. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the festival? It's now an Ottawa mainstay. Uh, and I know with COVID restraints and all, we're potentially looking at a digital version of the festival coming out. But do you want to share with the audience a little bit more about what brought the film festival together, what sort of the focus is, and, and how you roll it out depending on when it's happening in the winter? Like what are, what's one of the sort of primary features in terms of how you show the films and what sort of projection scenario? Sure. So I guess the... Festival really started because I had a background in film and really love film. And Chris Wong also had a little bit of a background in film and arts. We were talking about starting some sort of art event <laughs> randomly in like probably like 2012 or something. And we were actually meeting up in the summers in on Victoria Island and practicing Ojibwe on Sunday afternoons, you know, once a week kind of thing. And then one time it was like pouring rain and we took refuge in the um, Library Archives Canada and there happened to be a Bollywood film festival on in the auditorium. We went and saw this great Bollywood film. It got us talking and we're like, why, why isn't there an Indigenous film festival in this town? It's the capital and, you know, other cities in, in Canada have Indigenous film festivals. And so the next thing we knew, we were writing grants and trying to get it off the ground. And we got some funding approved in the, the first year. We didn't know what we were doing, but we did it. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then we just kept going with the festival, figuring out what works and what doesn't work. We always wanted to like prioritize Indigenous made film and video and art and stories and perspectives and also sort of create like a gathering space for Indigenous people to share and, and come together. So some of the, the things that we do have been... Film screenings, yeah, but we've always started with an opening night outdoor film screening. Uh, it used to be on Victoria Island outdoors, an outdoor screening. It was open, free to the public, good way to start things off. And then we also worked with like local artist-run centers like Saw Gallery and Gallery 101 to curate an art exhibition focusing on Indigenous artists with a theme. Each year it changes. And then we always included music programming. 
since the first year, we've always had musicians and performers. And yeah, so it's kind of a mix of different arts. And yeah, I guess we just always really wanted to just showcase and celebrate the amazing Indigenous artistic talent out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think you do that successfully. Like there's such a breadth to the work that's shown. And like when it moved over to Lansdowne, what's now called TD Place, having the ice screening in the wintertime, that's always something that is not a common practice in the city, right? So it's definitely something that like folks are curious and wanting to know. And I think it's such a wonderful way to like get people to come out in the winter too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the snow screen, something we do with the SNAPCA festival, it's like not the main festival, but we usually do try and do different screenings and one-off screenings and programming throughout the year. And back in, uh, oh God, I don't know when that was, but we, me and Chris went to this conference. It was actually a gathering of Indigenous film festival organizers from all over the world that Imaginative in Toronto kind of organized this conference. And at this conference, we met the coolest people that are planning Indigenous film festivals from like Hawaii to New Zealand to Finland and South America. And it was an unbelievable experience. But we met uh, Suna and she was Sammy from Gamagabat Film Festival in Finland, I believe Finland. And Anyway, she told us of how at their festival, they do this outdoor winter snow screening. They build this giant snow, snow theater and they screen films. And then like Chris was ever since then, Chris was like talking about, we got to do this. We got to do this. Finally, like two years after we first heard of it, I was like, fine, let's do it. I think we got like, you know, under $2,000 from like a couple of different organizations or something. So we have this tiniest budget. You know, we literally built screen like ourselves with like shovels and like, we brought in uh, July Papati and Inuit Snow Carver, who kind of taught us how to like, saw blocks of snow into cubes. And we spent like two days like building this wall of snow to project films on. And yeah, so the snow screen's really fun. It's really cold. And we've been doing it, I think we've done it three or four years now. And um, it's kind of like we always do it with like almost no budget and just with the labor of love and the support of the city and who donates the space and resources but mostly just our own time and labor to get it going it's pretty cool we project films on a screen made of snow in the winter it, you, you gotta check it out it's beautiful <laughs> if folks haven't been to an Asanavka winter screening it's very direly needed to be a thing you're both talking about doing works through your different organizational relationships. Cole, you'd mentioned that you'd been with a nonprofit before. Howard, your work with Saw Gallery and having filmmaking workshops. As we're wrapping up, I'll revisit a question I'd mentioned before. So as you're going from a youth, Howard, I know you mentioned you came to Ottawa a little bit later in your 20s, but I'm still going to frame that as youth. But you're now going into youth mentorship territory, and that's what you've been cultivating, both your artistic practices and your organizational relationships. What do you wish for the, the present in terms of resources, but what do you wish for ideally in the Ottawa landscape for what it could look like for Two-Spirit creatives, for Indigenous queer youth to be encouraged to produce and take up ownership of telling stories? I'll let Howard go first this time. <laughs> I guess I really like to see organizations make more dedicated, continuous inclusion of two-spirit programs and arts programming and not just doing it kind of like sporadically, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, with SNAPCA, I've always tried to include it like not every year, but a lot of years we've done two-spirit dedicated film programs. And, you know, we've always tried to make space for that at the festival. 
And I just wish other organizations would do that a bit more. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. Like, I feel like a lot of times gender issues in terms of like indigenous organizations, gender issues or two-spiritness like come secondary or it's only like funded for a short period of time. Right. I currently work for an indigenous organization on a gender project and it's funded through the government, the Women and Gender Equality uh, Department. And that's like just a four-year program. But like, how do we keep these for like these small projects off the shelf and going for more longevity? How do we create these spaces um, and continue these conversations um, in a sustainable way so that they don't just collect dust? Um, and when I say collect dust, I'm thinking specifically about like toolkits or events, you know, like how do we make sure that they are ongoing and we give our communities the tools that they need to like self-sustain these conversations. So that's definitely something that I'm looking into and trying to answer those questions for myself. And it all comes down to money, which is like really unfortunate in our capitalist society that like it's where's the funding going to? We're all fighting for the same crumb of funding and so you know i think spaces like this like art galleries or exhibits like this that include these voices and are creating these platforms you know like this podcast is excellent for having these conversations when i first got here or howard first got to ottawa and these conversations weren't happening and now they're happening like that's amazing if i was 18 and hearing a podcast or hearing about something, you know, maybe that would have helped my trajectory. So that's my hope is that, you know, maybe some young queer Indigenous person is able to come to the exhibit and just see representation that they so, so desperately need but don't have. Or, you know, with podcasts and the internet now, we can reach far, farther audiences. And, and that is beautiful. Yeah. I think you bring in like such a beautiful point, both of you in terms of when it comes to like the pragmatic of like the fact that we exist inside a capitalist space so that like funding is so direly needed in order to get things off the ground and to keep them continuously rolling and then to exist beyond the snapshot of a moment when you're coming in in terms of like reaching internal community, but also just like trying to situate yourself and Ottawa, you know, it's harder I find to break into to just come in and all of a sudden all the resources are like in your face. They're really not. You almost have to seek them out and sort of like DIY your own adventure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then what kind of resources can exist that are accessible, that aren't like reliant on you having to like fund your way into those spaces, right? And that they're there welcoming you to like generate for yourself and then for your peers and your broader community at large. Are there any last questions or thoughts that either of you would like to share before we wrap up our talk today? I'm good. Yeah? Howard? No, I can't really think of anything. Just uh, Chimmy Gwetch and a uh, big thank you for having us on. Uh, it's been really fun chatting, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you both so much for taking the time and chatting with me. It's always a little bit startling to not have faces to talk with as we're in conversation. So I appreciate the patience in just like sharing your stories with me and with the audience who will listen in on this podcast. Kara and I are so like excited to have your work in the show. 
we can't wait to be able to see them, but also to be able to share the beautiful labors of love that both of you have been working on for so long. So thank you. Thanks for this afternoon, but thanks in general for the labor that you've been putting in. Yeah, uh, McRich for having me and for creating this space and creating this conversation. McRich. Bye. All right. All right. Take care, everyone. Be Continued, a Stonecroft Symposium podcast, is produced by Finn Sun, Anna Shahak, and Kara Tierney. Music provided by bensound.com. The podcast is part of Carleton University Art Gallery's virtual Stonecroft Symposium. The symposium is organized in conjunction with the exhibition To Be Continued, Troubling the Queer Archive, curated by Anna Shahak and Kara Tierney, and presented at the gallery in the fall 2020. The exhibition and podcast expand conversations around local queer histories and futures. We are grateful for the support of Carleton University, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Stonecroft Foundation for the Arts. The Stonecroft Foundation promotes education in the visual arts and fosters the public's appreciation of the visual arts. Find out more about the Stonecroft Symposium by visiting quag.ca. That's C-U-A-G dot C-A.